Well, I want to start out by asking uh, you guys a personal question tonight, uh, mainly for me to help get to know my audience here. How many people here this evening uh, grew up in slightly moderate, extreme, dysfunctional families? <laughs> north of the Bronx, and I, I grew up in the projects, and I grew up poor. Growing up in the projects and growing up poor are synonymous. I mean, almost everybody that I knew lived in the projects was poor. I mean, people didn't choose to live in the projects. You didn't think, gee, I think I'll go uh, check out those projects over there and see, if, uh, see what kind of view they have. So we just kind of ended up there. And I didn't know anything else but the projects. I also, uh, you know, I also went to uh, eight years of uh, Catholic school, so, uh, so the whole Irish Catholic thing was very present for me too. And uh, St. Joseph's was the school I, I, I went to, and after eight years I, I told my father I had enough, I was going to public high school. So, um, so after eight years of what I called prison, I uh, finally uh, got, got out and, and uh, started public high school, and uh, really all hell broke loose. I mean, no more altar boy, no more confession, no more uh, Ten Commandments, you know, especially the one, do not steal. Got that one right out the window. And, uh, and uh, you know, I, I had some, uh, some iconic figures in my life, Mickey Mantle, James Cagney. I mean, my big goal in life was to be a gangster because in my neighborhood, the gangsters looked pretty good. You know, the rest of the people were poor, but the gangsters drove nice cars and you know they wore nice clothes and and, and they did pretty good. So, so my goal after getting out of Catholic school and starting <laughs> high school uh, was to become a successful gangster. <laughs> and uh, and. Uh, and uh, you know, and I had a good role model, James Cagney. Watch his movies every Saturday afternoon. I had to talk down. You know, I I wasn't a big kid, so you know, I knew I was gonna have to talk tough, you know, and act tough, you know. And um, and so I uh, so I, I you knew I knew I was gonna need a crew, so I I, I picked a crew. I I picked this one guy, Tommy Sestone. Tommy Sestone was uh, an Italian kid in my neighborhood, really good looking kid. The, the two attributes I, I really liked about Tommy though is that, that uh, he could fight like hell and, and he could run like the devil. <laughs> now, these were important job skills. <laughs> and then the other guy I picked in my crew was Billy Sava. Now, we picked him pretty much totally out of sympathy because Billy had polio. And, and he had a big brace on his leg. And, and, and you know, Billy wasn't the smartest kid in the world, and, and, and nobody in the neighborhood liked him, so we felt sorry for him. So we decided to make him part of our crew, and somehow we were gonna fit him in. 
So, uh, and, and we loved Billy. We, we did call him Peg Leg. These were not politically correct times. Right? You know, we didn't, the term dysfunctional family when I was in 1964 didn't exist. We, we would say things like, man, you know, your family is really fucked up. Your family is more fucked up than my family. And that's pretty fucked up. We didn't have terms like uh, chemical dependency, you know, or your father has a substance abuse problem. Your father was a drunk, you know. So, uh, so, uh, so, you know, I got my organization together, and, you know, I had a plan. What we were going to do is, uh, me and Tommy were going to do all the stealing, and we were going to appoint Billy the sales manager because he pretty much wasn't capable of, of doing a whole lot else. So we uh, went out to all the to, to the local malls, and we had a we had a great plan. And and the plan was this: we knew that we could outrun the cops. Now the reason we knew that is because we had a lot of experience. <laughs> so and I don't know if you've ever seen that movie that took place in India, Slumdog Millionaire, where those kids ran through the streets of India. But that was us. We knew every crook and cranny. We knew every little alleyway. You know, the cops would chase us and they chase us, and we never ran out of breath. And finally, the cops would just go, oh, "Fuck it." <laughs> so, so our plan was, you know, we would go into these, these, we'd go into these department stores and just grab all kinds of shit and run, you know. And, and you know, we wanted to get merchandise that was resellable. So we took record albums, we took jewelry, clothing, watches, earrings, uh, everything. You know, you name it, we had it. And you know we built up a nice, a pretty good inventory, and we what we decided to do was to fill our our lockers in in high school with the merchandise. <laughs> so from the bottom of our locker to the top of the locker was full of merchandise, and we tried to display it nicely, you know. <laughs> the wares, you know, and we be quickly became the most popular kids in the high school because, you know, we had what everybody wanted, you know, and we had it at a very low price. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't buy this stuff at the store for this price. And so, and we also took custom orders, you know. <laughs> Your girlfriend's, you know, birthday was coming up. And you know, Special necklace. <laughs> so everything's going smooth. The operation's going smooth. We're the kingpins of the high school. We're rolling in dough. You know, um, things couldn't be better. And um, one day, Billy Savage comes up to me and he says, "You know, Doc Evans wants to buy something from me." Now, Doc Evans was a teacher. But Doc Evans was gay and he was black. And we thought he was like really cool. You know, he would talk to the kids and so Billy says, Do you think I should sell him something? I said, I don't think so, Billy, but I'll I'll leave it up to you. 
and you know, you your judgment, you decide. So a few days later, I'm sitting in art class and I'm looking out the window, as you usually do in art class, especially, and and. There's a big loudspeaker, you know, right up at the center of the classroom, and I'm looking out the window, and I hear my name mentioned. It says, will Michael Hibbard, Billy Sava, and Tommy Sestong please report to the principal's office immediately? <laughs> and then, uh, I think some more vodka. <laughs> it's not really vodka. But, <laughs> So then I'm going, oh my God, this this just just this can't be good, you know. And you know, of course, the principal's you know office is five miles from my classroom, so I, I have to walk down this long corridor. And on the way down there, I feel like James Cagney walking to the gas chamber. <laughs> you know, this is the end, you know. I'm thinking about my poor mother. My mother's going to be a nervous wreck. My mother always told me that you know. Um, that I was going to end up dead in the gutter just like my bum friends, you know, and she was this, you know, real Irish worrisome woman, you know, so I was thinking, oh my God, she's going to be terribly upset at me. But more importantly, I was thinking about all of the, the different things that my father was going to do to me, you know, not to mention the police. So as I uh, get, you know, to, to the office finally, there's a huge buzz all around the principal's office. There's people standing outside the office. All the secretaries are there chatting each other. And I get one glimpse inside the principal's office. And the principal has this huge desk. And the desk is just a mountain <laughs> full of merchandise. <laughs> Everything out of our three lockers is sitting on his desk. You know? It's just like this big you know, Christmas thing. <laughs> There's two police officers sitting there, and of course all of our parents are sitting there, you know, stone-faced, looking at us, you know, and, and uh, you know, so I pretty much figure I'm done for, and uh, the cops didn't let me go in the office. They grab me, and they take me off to a side room and start to grill me. Now, we have a code in my neighborhood, you know. There's two things that you never do. You never rat on your friends and you never open up your fucking mouth to the cops, you know. And so that's what I did. So the cops said, where'd you get that stuff? I said, I've never seen that stuff before in my life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I did, did my thing and, you know, several minutes go by and they go, oh, okay, wise guy, we don't really need your testimony anyway because your friend Billy Savage just told us everything. So I go back into the office and I give Billy Savage a look. Even though I love him, I gotta give him a look and he puts his head down, you know, you dirty rat. And, and then, you know, finally I got enough courage to look across the room and see my dad just beaming at me, you know, and thinking, oh my God, I, I, you, know, in, you know, just a little while from now, I'm gonna have to go home and, Deal with him, and in those days, you know, uh, you know, you know, um, uh, my dad hit me with the belt. By today's standards, that would probably be called child abuse. But in those days, it was pretty standard procedure. 
everybody in my neighborhood got hit by the belt. My dad not only hit me with the belt, but as he was chasing me down the hallway, he made sure he knew I was gonna get it. You know? So anyway, long story short, I go home, I take my punishment, and uh, a couple of days later, um, we're at the bus stop, me and Tommy and Billy. And um, we forgave Billy, Billy's still our friend. You know, what are we gonna do? The guy's got polio, he's got no friends. <laughs> <laughs> so, we're, on, we're waiting for the bus to, to go to high school. Oh, and by this time we're, you know, we're like, superheroes at our high school. Because, you know, getting arrested's a big deal, you know. That makes you that makes that puts you really up high in the status. And uh, and in any case, we're getting on getting you ready to get on the bus to go to high school. Only only thing is Billy says, you know, my dad beat the shit out of me the last three nights in a row. And I've had it. I'm running away from home and I'm leaving New York. He says, I've got money saved you guys want to come with me, I'm leaving, I'm getting out. So, you know, it took me and Tommy probably a half a millisecond to say, <laughs> yes, we're coming with you, you know. I mean, who doesn't want to leave the projects? So we turn around, we cross the street, we get on the bus going down to 42nd Street, and uh, between 42nd and 43rd is uh, Port Authority, biggest bus station in uh, New York City, 50 million people take buses through there every year. We go into this big place and you know they have all these big plaques on the wall where you can go, California, Florida, New Mexico, you know. I wanted to go to Florida, I wanted to go to California, but we could only afford Florida. <laughs> so we thought we'd go to Miami. Only we don't have enough money to get to Miami, so we buy a Greyhound ticket to Jacksonville, Florida. And you know, now we know we're we're on the land, we're really on the run. You know, we're wanted criminals. So we're gonna have to disguise ourselves. So we go we go into the drugstore in 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 uh, Port Authority and we buy a bottle of peroxide. We go into one of the men's room, didn't get molested, and, and we, uh, we all dyed our hair platinum. Plus we're going to Miami and we probably fit right in with platinum. We also bought three pairs of cheap sunglasses. So now we got, now we got black leather jackets on, sunglasses, and platinum hair. <laughs> So we're in disguise and nobody will, nobody will know We take the Greyhound bus to, to, to Jacksonville, Florida. We get off the bus. We have no fucking idea where we are. And we don't even know where we're going. We're going to Miami, but we don't know what lies ahead in Miami. And, you know, we have a little bit of money left for food, so we decided we're just gonna hitchhike to Miami. So Jacksonville is at the very northern tip of Florida, and this is 64, so this is the deep south. So you can only imagine these truck drivers coming by with you know guns in the back of their window and deer strapped on their you know, 
the, these guys are, you know, these guys are the real Southern uh, guys that Neil Young used to talk about, you know. And and I and I can only imagine what these guys must have been thinking, looking at these three teenagers with leather jackets, platinum hair, and sunglasses on, hitchhiking down the A1A highway in, in Florida. Now the A1A highway in Florida runs along the whole eastern seaboard of Florida. It runs all the way from Jacksonville to, uh, I believe, Miami. We never made it that far. But, but on, one side of the, on one side of the road is the ocean. And on the other side of the road is sort of the swamplands. And they have these bugs there that are called palmettos. And I don't know if anybody's familiar with palmettos, but they're basically giant flying cockroaches. <laughs> we have cockroaches in New York, but they're this big. The cockroaches in Florida are this big. Now, Billy Sava is pretty much crying the whole time. <laughs> and of course, we're not walking along the A1 Highway. We're hopping along the A1 Highway because Billy has the brace on. So, you know, we're, we're probably going about a half a mile an hour. And, and nobody's giving us a ride. I mean, people like stop and they look at us. <laughs> you know, they must have been thinking, these guys can't possibly be from this planet. You know? <laughs> so hours and hours go by, and finally we're in the middle of the night, and, and, and Florida is muggy and buggy. You know, it's humid, it's hot, you know, we're tired, we haven't eaten, you know listening to Billy crying for hours, you know. And, and, you know, and we, me and Tommy like to think of ourselves as tough guys, but inside I'm, I'm saying, oh, Mommy, I just want to go home. I, I mean, put me on a street in the Bronx in, in a really bad neighborhood, I'm not scared, but put me out on a road with no lights, ocean and flying cockroaches, I'm pretty scared. So finally, Finally, what happens is a sheriff car pulls up, and sheriff pulls up to us, rolls down the windows, and says, "What you boys doing here?" And we said, "Nothing." <laughs> you know the code, you know. What I'm The cop says, well, would you, would you like a ride? We said, no, sure, you know. <laughs> we get in the car with the cop, and, and he starts asking us all kinds of questions, where we're from, you know, blah, blah, blah. We tell him nothing. <laughs> so he goes, well, since you guys aren't going to tell me anything, I'm going to have to take you to jail. So the next town <coughs> in is St. Augustine County, Florida. And we're thinking in our mind, he can't put us in jail. We're only 13 years old. Sure enough, he locks us up, puts us in a jail cell, the three of us. Here we are sitting in St. Augustine County Jail. And guess what's right next door to the St. Augustine County Jail? A potato chip factory. Why is potato chip factory? I don't know anybody here from New York, but that's the big potato chip in New York. Unfortunately, you don't get any potato chips when you're in jail. You get black coffee, a piece of bread, a slice of bologna, and, and a little bit of mustard, and that's it. You know? So 
again, we're not going to crack. We're tough guys. We're not telling them anything. We're going to stick it out. You know? <laughs> and so for days, they keep us in there. They don't even know who we are. They have no names. We didn't tell them nothing. You know? They just know we're a bunch of crazy kids from New York. You know? So finally, after about three or four days, uh, Billy breaks down and, and tells the warden everything, you know. And, and I gotta admit, at this point, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of happy that he did because I didn't really plan on spending the rest of my life in St. Augustine County Jail. And, um, and um, my parent, our parents found out, you know, that we were out there, they contacted my parents. And my dad's first reaction was, let him rot there. <laughs> we're not sending, we're not sending, let him rot there, you know. And, and, and so for a couple of days, it took kind of a little finagling. Finally, my dad and the other parents buy some, some, some plane tickets. Sheriffs bring us to the airport, put us on a plane back to New York. And on the plane back to New York, I have two parallels of thought running to my, through my mind. One parallel is, I'm going to be a hero in my neighborhood. Not only did I run away, but I ran away 1,500 miles to Florida. Now, I've run away before, you know, up the street to the park or over a friend's house, but I never ran away to Florida before, and I just spent six days in jail. <laughs> that gives you a lot of street cred in my neighborhood. <laughs> but the other thought is, my dad's going to be waiting for me at the gate. You know, my father is going to be waiting for me at the gate, and this and all hell is going to break loose. So, plane lands in New York. You know, pull into JFK. Gate opens up. I walk out, and I can see my father standing. You know, over at the gate waiting for me. And I'm walking like this down. You know, towards my dad. And when I get to my father and I get closer, I look up at him and he has a huge smile on his face, which is very uncharacteristic. My dad is like this, you know, World War II hero. He's a guy at Storm Normandy, not a man of, you know, not a man of a lot of forgiveness, you know. And, uh, and he's smiling. And uh, I walk up and my dad uh, sticks out his hand and shakes my hand. And he said, it took a lot of guts to do what you did. You're clean with me. You're forgiven. And that was it. You know, there was no punishment. There was no nothing. You know, and I wish I could say that that was a turning point in my life. And that from then on, I never did another thing wrong. You know? <laughs> years and a, and a few more years in reform school to really straighten me out. But I, I do want to tell my mom, who's up in heaven, that I that I did not die in the gutter with my bunk friends. <laughs> and um, I wanted to tell this story to my father uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, as a parting gift because my father was dying, um, but he died before I could get there, so I you know, I, I told it to him quietly uh, as he lay there at the, at the wake, you know. And, um, but, you know, um, you know, I, I got to tell you that 
you know, this storytelling thing that I'm doing now is no accident. You know, it's very cosmic. I mean that, you know, that I I met these beautiful people that run this, uh, Lynn and Lawrence, and invited me to do this right at a time that something, you know, um, you know, very sad was going on in, in, in my life. And that tonight I want to dedicate this story to my father who who died last week, was buried with a full military uh, funeral and uh, and was a very brave man. Thank you. Yeah.